All right, thanks for joining us, everybody. It's time for Money Talks, and we're here with uh, David Yaskevich. Uh, David is the chair over at the uh, Department of Economics, Accounting, and Finance. I believe I, I got those rearranged, Accounting, Economics, and Finance. Is that correct? Or did I just say the same thing <laughs> twice? <laughs> David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, how are you? Doing fine, doing fine. We are glad, as always, to have you here. Um, and it's been an interesting you know, uh, set a few days here with different economic stories coming out. And I mean, obviously there's, there's always some sort of economic news going on and that's how we, we, uh, we are able to, to uh, uh, feed these kind of discussions. But it seems like there's been a, a flurry of things that I think folks would be uh, interested in checking out. Namely this morning we had Governor Parsons uh, signing changes in a, a substantial income tax cut here in the states, so I would suggest folks interested in that head to kfvs12.com. You can find that story there. Um, but we have a, a couple of other stories coming down nationally and from, and from yesterday as well. And uh, one of those I thought might be worth a mention um, here before we get into the thick of things uh, with our other subjects would be the topic of, of the fiscal year starting for the U.S. and a a record level of debt uh, happening. Is, is this fairly common? You know, of course, we, we, we hear conversations about cutting the debt. Um, is, I mean, really, is, is the start of each fiscal year a record, or is this a particular uh, record, do we think? The national debt um, is accumulated by the federal government. And we could ask, how is it being measured if you were to measure it in actual dollar terms? Uh, entering the new fiscal year, which started on October 1st, that debt level for the federal government would have been $31 trillion with a T. And, um, you know, if we ask, is $31 trillion a large number? Well, it, it depends. For different countries, it would be an incredibly large number. Um, it is a large number, period. But uh, my point being, if you just measured in the number of dollars, it, it might... Uh, not give the full picture of how large that number is. Because uh, we all know if, if we look at a, a dollar in the year 2022, it's not worth the same as a dollar in uh, 2021 or in 2018. Uh, so in inflation certainly happens. So if you're looking historically and you want to compare the debt level of the, of the United States and see how it's changing over time, you'd probably want to adjust for inflation, but I, I would recommend reporting it as a percentage of the overall national income as measured by GDP. So if you compare that $31 trillion federal debt level to the GDP of the United States, which would be roughly $25 trillion, uh, as a percentage of our overall annual income generated by the by the U.S. economy, uh, the debt to GDP ratio would be rough, roughly um, 1.2 or 1.25 so that would suggest as a percentage of our overall national income the federal debt would be between 120 and 125 percent of that so that's a that's a large number by that measure and that's really what uh i would really highlight usually the the dollar level of 31 trillion would take the headline but as a percentage of the national income uh i think that's really what readers would want to take away or viewers would want to take away from that story uh, so usually we get a report on uh, how high the, the national debt is um, throughout the year, but, but particularly when we hit that October 1st date where the new fiscal year begins. Um, 
you know, we could ask whether that's a concern or not. Uh, definitely a, a large national debt would be a concern. Really the focus would be, would the growth in the national debt, so the rate at which new debt is accumulated, the rate at which uh, new interest payments are, are required to be paid, uh, would the growth in the national debt outpace the growth of our economy in the long term? That's really the, the if we were to ask, is that level unsustainable? That's really the question we would want to address. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll leave the bright uh, policymakers in Washington uh, decide on, on that one. But uh, yeah, it's, it's good to get an update and $31 trillion or 125% uh, of our national income, that's a good, uh, some good food for thought. Certainly is, certainly is. And um, then looking there at some of our overall economic conditions, things affecting the markets, things affecting the situation as it stands within the health of our, our economy. Um, we had the, the personal consumption expenditure index uh, coming out and talking about the situation with inflation in August. Um, what did we see there? Were, were levels still high? And, and, and kind of what, what goes into determining both um, that kind of, that kind of uh, information from that report? And what, and what does it mean to us? Right. Um, so, so we got an inflation update uh, at the end of last week on Friday. And this would have covered the, the month of August. Now, when we last met on Money Talks, we talked about the Consumer Price Index, which also looked at the month of August. Uh, and, and the rate of inflation for an annual basis was around 8.2%. Now, with the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, the number is usually a little bit smaller compared to the CPI. Uh, because it, it uh, for a variety of reasons, one, it, it puts different weights on different product categories. In addition, and this is an important one, the personal consumption expenditure index, when uh, calculating um, the rate of inflation, it would look uh, and, and consider more substitution effects. So for example, if the price of groceries goes up, maybe I substitute towards other products or I substitute away from products that become more expensive. Uh, those substitution effects aren't as well accounted for in the consumer price index. That's one of the few reasons why the Federal Reserve tends to prefer the personal consumption expenditure index when looking at uh, the rate of inflation and making policy decisions. But nonetheless, uh, we really didn't get any new information, new numbers, but basically inflation is still high. And so far, the five interest rate, actually it would have been four at the time of the data were collected, the four interest rate increases uh, didn't appear to have much of a, a dent on the inflation rate. In fact, if you look at this personal consumption expenditure index measure of inflation, uh, if you looked at um, core items, excluding food and energy, the pace actually would have accelerated between July and August. So inflation is still high, uh, which would probably indicate that we're likely to see further uh, interest rate hikes by the Federal Open Market Committee uh, at their next meeting in November and then later in December. But, um, uh, you know, something else to keep in mind, and we mentioned this on the last time we met, uh, the month of August would have seen fairly significant declines in gas prices. And uh, keep that in mind, we saw this high rate of inflation, a little bit of an acceleration over the past month, a little bit of an acceleration, uh, but that would have been in the presence of lower gas prices. So. Um, uh, not really anything new there, but it's saying inflation is staying stubbornly high. And in terms of reducing that inflation rate, we are nowhere near the tip of the iceberg yet. All right. So good information to keep in mind and good to, uh, I suppose, look for, we'll look out and uh, help guide, guide us through as, uh, as we look ahead. And 
Looking then also at markets uh, related to, uh, well, transport, of course, we're talking, talked fuel there for a moment, but um, uh, regarding the situation with, with CarMax has been a story that's been going around, reporting a, a drop in sales, um, you know, suggesting that the sale of used cars is down. Uh, what are we seeing around there, and, and what kind of factors are we going to be seeing contributing to that as, as, as far as, um, as well as its relationship to the sale of, uh, of new, new cars? Mm -hmm. Car markets are interesting. Uh, one, if we look at the supply chain issues post-pandemic, I think the car markets uh, have really been the, the front lines of that uh, supply chain issue and the supply chain problems. So we're really at ground zero of the uh, supply chain issues. So uh, in addition to that, if we look at car markets, you have pretty deep and pretty robust new car markets and used car markets. So if we look at, as you were mentioning, CarMax, CarMax would be the largest used car retailer in the United States. And last week on Thursday, when they reported their most recent quarterly earnings report, it didn't look too good. And they reported pretty, pretty steep declines in annual earnings if you look at a 12-month uh, basis. And we would have also seen, uh, compared to the, the, the same quarter in the previous year, they would have seen a reduction in the number of cars sold and used cars by about 6.4%. Uh, so this was not a good uh, report for CarMax. Some of that was expected. Uh, but again, keep in mind, this is the largest retailer when it comes to used car, cars in the United States. They do a lot of online sales, but also they have some uh, brick-and-mortar stores in the U.S. Uh, this, this was taken as an indication that used car markets are starting to see declines in sales. Now, uh, factors contributing to that, we mentioned interest rates a, a moment ago, and, and certainly if interest rates are going higher, that would affect the ability of some people to uh, borrow to make those used uh, payments for used cars. Um, if, you, if you were to look, uh, in roughly the last uh, two years, you'd seen roughly a a 40% increase in the price of the average used car, where the average used car right now is going for somewhere between twenty-eight dollars and $30,000. So uh, there's interest rates, but there's also the price of used cars, as we all are probably aware by now, have increased significantly uh, in the last two years. Uh, but plus, you know, in addition to factors specific to car markets, uh, there, there, there again is, 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 is some... Uh, uncertainty or there, there's some uh, challenges in the economy with broad-based inflation uh, even if uh, they don't want to buy a car other products are more expensive and that could impact uh, their ability to afford a car so affordability uh, is a concern for a variety of reasons general inflation higher prices specific to, to cars uh, and also interest rates so it seems like it's a rough uh, market for used cars uh, last week when this information was reported just to show how investors are interpreting this information uh, the price of CarMax's stock went down a little over 20 percent and uh, one of their competitors Carvana saw uh, a similar magnitude of the drop in the the stock price over the last uh, half of September so it looks like there's some pessimism dealing with used car markets if we compare that to new car markets, uh, maybe maybe the data recently have been a little bit better, but somewhat mixed. Um, we just ended the month of September. So for the third quarter of the year, which would have looked at July, August, and September, uh, for that period of time, the, the major car uh, manufacturers uh, in the past week have reported their third quarter sales numbers. 
And uh, making particular headlines, what had been earlier this week with General Motors, uh, had a pretty good third quarter. If you compare General Motors to last year at this time, they would have seen their sales go up roughly 20 24%. And that would have been one of the leading uh, performers in the, the car industry when it comes to new car sales uh, based on third quarter numbers. Ford came out with their numbers yesterday. I'm going to use this term again. The results were somewhat mixed. They saw a pretty sizable increase in their third quarter sales of new cars. Uh, but it was kind of uh, choppy if you look at the different months of the third quarter. They had pretty strong months of July and August, but their September numbers were down pretty uh, steeply. But on net, they had an overall increase in sales for the month, for the third quarter of the year. Uh, Toyota, Stellantis, uh, you know, in comparison, they reported declines in sales. So if you look at the major car manufacturers and you look at their U.S. sales of new cars, uh, it might, on average, look better than the used car markets right now, but uh, I'd say it's somewhat mixed. And I, I think the same problems that are plaguing the, the used car uh, sellers would also affect the new car sell sellers, where there's these macroeconomic conditions of higher interest rates, higher prices for, for cars, including new cars, uh, but also higher prices for a broad range of other categories as well with general inflation. And, you know, there could be some uncertainty in the coming months on how the economy is going to perform. So I think the macroeconomic headwinds are something that's affecting both used car and um, new car markets. Uh, perhaps the only silver lining in there is that when GM reported their sales, uh, they also reported that they, they're seeing some improvements in getting chips, uh, computer chips for the production of cars, and that how that shortage is kind of alleviating, at least from their perspective. Uh, other car companies weren't as uh, vocal about that or open about that, so uh, it remains to be seen to what extent that's affecting the other manufacturers. But if there is a silver lining, that that might have been one of them. All right. Um, is there anything in particular that we would expect to a variable that might arise that would we would expect to change that dynamic to change how the the sales are going for new and used cars? I think over time you would just wait for the prices to adjust uh, due to higher interest rates, due to weakening or softening consumer demand. I think it's going to take a softening in consumer demand before you see any real big changes in the, the car markets. It's probably going to have to start with demand and then impact the price. Uh, so it doesn't sound too optimistic, but that's, that's kind of where I see things headed. Well, I mean, uh, perhaps uh, I suppose that is all in the the the, the game or the 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 methodology of of, uh, of economics, whether it's optimistic or or not. But um, all of that in consideration, yeah. <laughs> um, all of that in consideration, uh, we also are seeing, and that's today. And I'm unclear at the moment whether they have bet or not yet. But OPEC um, has a Wednesday meeting, and that is to affect or to basically make cuts to production targets. What, what are we seeing there and what kind of outcomes will that, uh, that have on uh, American consumers? So they met this morning in uh, Vienna, Austria. And you know, you know, maybe a side point of significance is this was their first face-to-face -face meeting since the pandemic. And it was anticipated that their first face-to-face -face meeting since the pandemic would have some significance or some meaningful change in uh, what their uh, production targets would be. And, and a lot of the speculation that was reported in the, the media in the last few days appeared to be true. Although, uh, 
heading into today, a lot of the news reports were anticipating that uh, OPEC would cut production targets by one million barrels of oil per day. Now, the significance of that is that would be equivalent to roughly, as an estimate, uh, one percent of global oil supply. So one percent of overall supply would be a pretty sizable cut. It turned out that OPEC actually announced they would cut uh, their production targets uh, by a greater magnitude, by two million uh, barrels per day, so roughly two percent of uh, global oil production. Um, there's there's some. There's some pros and cons if you look at some of the details of what was reported today. Uh, when this announcement was made, it was pointed out that if you look at current production by OPEC countries and the OPEC plus countries, uh, they're not meeting their current production targets. So if you look at current production targets, it was reported that OPEC is 3 million barrels a day below those. So it's possible that this cut is just making their production targets more in line with reality. If that's the case, then uh, you're not going to see a big impact on oil prices and gasoline prices. If, on the other hand, it's not just aligning things with reality and it is a sign that production really will fall by 2 million barrels per day, that could have some impact on the price of, of oil and gas. And it wouldn't be in the downward direction, be in the upward direction. Uh, but other factors to consider as well, we just talked about a weakening used car market, some concerns in uh, the uh, new car market. We talked about inflation being stubbornly high, which would likely have some impact on interest rates going higher by policymakers' decisions. Uh, another thing that made the news this week was a reduction in job openings. Um, so all of those are suggesting some combination of macroeconomic factors that would lead to a weak, weaker economy, at least in the U.S., if we look at other countries, it actually looks a bit weaker than the U.S. So it's possible that OPEC's decision to cut production had something also had some consideration of weakening global demand for oil. Uh, so there's the supply side, which is what OPEC reported on this morning, but there's also the demand side, uh, which is yet to be seen. And it's possible that OPEC's supply cuts were anticipating that demand for oil would be weaker in the future, and it would be a way of stabilizing prices during weaker demand. So. Um, that could be another part of their decision today. So I, I want to be clear on here. There is this report of a pretty significant reduction in their production targets. But again, there is some underproduction currently going on. If it's just aligning the production targets with what's actually going on, there wouldn't be as big of an impact on oil and gas prices. If they're anticipating weaker demand for oil and gas products, and that's what actually happens, well, then you're not going to see much of an impact or much of an effect on overall prices. Um, so so it, it's not necessarily the case that we're going to see a, a skyrocket in oil and gas prices, but it could. If demand doesn't decline by as much, um, you could really see an increase in, in prices as a result of, result of this decision. My main point here is that it's too early to tell what the impact will be. We're pretty confident it won't be in the downward direction. If anything, it'd be in the upward direction. It's just a matter of how much. All right. Considering other variables then perhaps that we've been looking at, you know, and, and this may be more anecdotal than anything, but throughout the, the region and, and such, um, there have been a, a little bit of an incremental increase in gas, which I know as we've been hoping and watching it to, to drop and, and, and we've been feeling so much better as it had kind of cleared the $3 mark. Um, what are we looking at as far as, um, is, this, is this the sort of news that plays into 
what, what's happening there at this point, or are there? Would we consider something else to be? It'd be too early to impact the prices we're seeing right now. But over the next quarter, as we enter uh, into the end of fall and beginning of winter, it sounds like bad timing if you think about it—a reduction in supply of oil as we enter the colder months of the year in the United States and even in, in Europe. Um, it's, it's, it's a little. Uh, worrisome on the timing of such a decision but again we, we'd have to see how this plays out with other factors as well so um we shall see all right all right now this is the the segment of the show where we i guess get out the uh, crystal ball but we shine it up a bit with uh, economic uh, methods and uh, and projections and the like and data um but uh, as, as we look ahead in the weeks to come what, what what's good to for us all to keep an eye on what's important um in the news that economists will be looking at in the days ahead. David has frozen. David, can you hear me? And uh, that's unrelated, but uh, we may have lost David. Okay, now, uh, David, you appear to be in motion again. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Oh, yes, yes. I said something profound. It's a shame that it uh, froze up. <laughs> the, the, the greatest uh, sound bite best to do it again. in the history of Bunny Talks just lost the history right there, unfortunately. <laughs> One for the highlight reel. <laughs> okay, what, I, what I was saying is that this Friday we have the monthly jobs report by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so we'll get the pace of employment growth, and we'll also get the new unemployment rate number. Um, this is particularly interesting considering that earlier this week we got the numbers on the, the job openings and labor turnover survey, or the JOLTS, which reported a rather provocative headline of a reduction in job openings by about 1.1 million job openings. And um, that sounds like a pretty big drop in job openings, and it is. But we still would see some indication in the data that there is this ongoing labor shortage. So even though we've had a drop in the number of job openings by 1.1 million uh, openings, or roughly 10%, uh, we would still see the number of uh, job openings per unemployed person uh, to have a pretty significant gap of roughly 4 million. Uh, or if we did a ratio for every one unemployed person, there's roughly 1.7 job openings out there. So it's, it'll be interesting when we get the new numbers for the month of September on what the, the labor market looks like uh, in terms of at least employment growth. Uh, also on the, the radar would be with Hurricane Ian ending, uh, what would be the, the fallout and some of the, the economic costs associated with that. So that's going to be an ongoing uh, thing to look at, but um, a lot on the radar for the coming week. All right, David, as always, it's a pleasure. We appreciate the time uh, you have spent here and all the information that you bring us each time. As always, we, we, we love having you here. Thanks so much. Thank you. As always, the pleasure was mine. All right, folks, we appreciate you all spending the time as well in your busy schedule to carve out a little bit of time for us here and our money talks. Uh, as always, we appreciate you. And uh, we'll be back here shortly, 3 o'clock, by the bushel with Barry Bean. Uh, it's just around the corner with a special presentation there to talk a little bit more about those ag tax credits from this morning with uh, Governor